Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I'm joined by my old friends Heidi White, Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, how's it going? Tim's on. Tim's on the phone. He's on the phone line instead of the Zoom line. Heidi's on, I'm on the, the phone. Zoom That's line. That's right. Yeah. Everybody, can you hear me? You guys, can you hear me? Can you talk louder? A little, just a little, just a little louder. What? That's good. Right there. I'm gonna need you at that volume the whole episode. The whole time. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Great. That's okay. what you get for being on right. the phone. Yeah. <laughs> you definitely chose to go this route. This is why Tim can't have nice things. Yeah. That's yeah. right. You have yeah, one we, uh, job, have Wi-Fi. <laughs> it's all Hey, did you guys yeah. miss me last week? I ha- yeah, exactly. I had to uh I had to mix things up and change the time of day that we're recording and now Tim's internet doesn't work. Sorry for screwing things up. That's right. Well, Tim, we're glad to have you back. You were lost at sea. But um, that although now that I think about it, that does explain why you don't have internet. Being lost at sea, the Wi-Fi is probably yeah, not great it out there. It yeah, right, exactly. I'm actually home. I'm home. But like not in reality. a dank not, basement of any kind. Not in a dank basement of any kind. No, I'm fresh from catching a steelhead on the Solduck River on the Olympic Peninsula. What? That you guys want to talk amazing. more about that? That was Thursday. I, mean, really was I read a river runs through it. I know all there is to know about the fishing life. <laughs> yeah, it was we, great. Did you camp and fish? Did you cabin and fish? Did you sleep no, in your no, no, in a no, van no. by the river? Hotel and fish. Hotel okay. and fish. Okay. We got up like four o'clock on Tuesday morning, and we were on the river by four forty-five. All right. All right. Nice. Great. Yeah. Nice. All right. Well, we have a limited, a more limited amount of time than usual this week. Um, so we're going to dive right in. That's enough small talk out of you. Um, we are here to discuss the final pages, really the final section of Graham Greene's The End of the Affair. Next week, we will answer your listener questions. Uh, and so that will give us a chance to fill in any gaps as usual. Don't forget, you can send questions to us uh, via Facebook. That's the just you know typing close reads on the search bar. If you've not joined the Facebook group already, if you want to post a question, you're already on there. Just uh, find the post. It'll be pinned as an announcement at the top of the page, and you can put your comment there in the thread. You can also email us at close reads podcast close reads podcast at gmail dot com, and we're on Instagram at close reads pods. The newsletter is closereads.substack.com and then our Patreon page is patreon.com slash closereads. We are working our way through crime and punishment, of course. And then also this Friday, we are going to be recording a what we're calling a mailbag episode. So we've been inviting people to send us questions on Facebook or via email and we will answer all kinds of questions. Just a wide-ranging fun episode. Just kind of, you know, a bit of nonsense, I suppose, is one way of putting it. So if you uh, if you're on supporting the show on patreon you're going to have access to that if you're not supporting the show on patreon then you're missing out on some great content as well as some sweet show swag that's my i'm I'm thinking about practicing a sean connery accent using that phrase just over and over again sean connery from the indiana jones movies say but i'm going to need tim as my dialect coach so tim put a pin in that for later just remember every word that starts with an s starts with an s c h got it okay like Schwimmer, like David Schwimmer, the actor. Well done. Got it. Okay. Well I'm gonna done. Remember that. I'm going to remember that for the rest of the show. Got um, it. Yeah. Now, um, see, see how like, powerful it is. No, but I'm going to learn. Um, okay. So we're here to discuss the, uh, the end of the affair. And I want to dive right in here just because we have limited time, as I said. And I've got a question for you guys because I was. I was thinking about the way this novel has been received over the years. And I know that Green was a little bit, uh, he wasn't terribly happy with the way it ended. But there's you know, a lot of writing about this book. It shows up on a lot of lists and has had lots of great criticism. Um, you know, William Faulkner called it one of the most true and moving novels of my time in anybody's language, famously. It's on the back of some of the, some of the editions. But uh, for The Independent, which is the newspaper magazine in the UK, 
from a writer, a novelist by named by the name of Alex Preston, wrote something that I wanted to get your feedback on. Um, and he says, of course, right as I go to it here, um, it makes me enter answer some of the questions, like one of those quizzes that pops up on a page. Oh no! So okay. oh no! All right. Do I think there's more nostalgia in filmmaking now? Yes, absolutely. Maybe a little. No, not at all. Oh, it went away now. Okay, good. I didn't even have to answer the question. All right. Riveting radio here. Riveting podcasting. Okay. Alex <laughs> Preston, in his retrospective on this book, he writes this. He, he quotes the final passage, right? Where, where Bendrix writes, Oh God, you've done enough. You've robbed me of enough. I'm too tired and old to learn to love. Leave me alone forever. So he writes that and then he says, this is, this is Alex Preston writing. Bendrix shows that there is no comfort in his newfound relationship with God. I found this, this an really thought-provoking assertion. Um, so I would like to talk about that as a way on entryway into this section of the book and these last, these last pages. Do you think that that is what Bendrix shows? Do you think that that is what this novel shows, that there is no comfort in Bendrix's newfound relationship with God? Patty, what do you think about this? Well, it's deliberately ambiguous. Um, so you're going to, as readers, we are, I, I think our interpretation of the end says more about us than it says about the actual end of the novel. <laughs> and that's what an ambiguous ending does, right? It, it, it awakens within us our latent assumptions. So if there is a latent assumption that there is no comfort in a newfound relationship with God, then that's what you're going to see. So I think it says something there. I, as someone for whom a relationship with God is infinitely comforting, I see him as on a pathway to redemption, which circles back to the beginning of the novel that claims, you know, you just arbitrarily pick a beginning and an ending. And I think he's on a road to being redeemed, uh, but it's not quite uh, embraced the love of God yet. Um, but that says a lot about my latent assumptions, which is true. Tim, what about you? I must have the same latent assumptions. I actually thought that the ending was a little bit less ambiguous, maybe Heidi, than you think. I saw it as he's repeating the same sorts of things that Sarah was saying in the beginning of her journal entries, mm -hmm. but she didn't want, she was taking no comfort in God's existence. Um, she kind of wanted out. She was searching for any way out. And then gradually through her diary entries and through the subsequent things that we discover about Sarah, we find out, no, she was actually on this path and God's presence in her life became the source of, Peace. I mean, it, maybe it wasn't fully realized because of her premature death, but I, boy, the reviewer seems to imply that Bendrix has arrived because he now believes in God, that he's like arrived at a place where his understanding of God is completed, that it's come full right. circle. And it's to me, it's like, no, he's just starting. This is just the beginning. This is not the, right. the final resting place for Ben Ricks. Or, I mean, maybe he'll veer off the path. Sarah didn't. And maybe he will on down the line. But I, I get the impression that we are, that the conclusion of the book is echoing what we heard from Sarah in the middle um, and late part of this novel. Maybe I'm, just a, maybe I'm just too rigid of a reader that I saw, I don't know. I, I, I saw it as a little bit less ambiguous. I fully grant that it's then, not. Then Heidi. Then um, what Heidi does. Is that what you're saying? Then Heidi, yeah. I, I completely agree that it's not, um, it, it's not the sort of conclusion that you can like chart on a piece of graph paper. It's not okay. crystal clear. But, um, boy, it just seemed to me like Graham Greene really connected the dots in the final pages of the book. David, how did you read it? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. 
Are you a close David? reader or are you not a close reader? This is literally What's going podcast. on with you, dude? <laughs> no. I don't I, know. <laughs> I didn't. The que- so, okay. I got to trace what just happened though. So I said, I asked the question, do you agree that there is no comfort in Bendrix's newfound relationship with God? Do you believe right. that, do you agree that is what the book is suggesting? How do you, your response was that the book is more ambiguous than that? Yeah. And that we are going to read our own assumptions into the ending. We are going, if we will approach that, the final phrase of the book is leave me alone. So mm-hmm. are we going to, we, we are going to put our own assumptions onto that ending. That's my statement. Yeah. But is the book itself suggest, does the book reveal within itself that Bendrix seems to think that it's, a, that there's not comfort in that, that his, that the faith he has been drawn into almost for that has almost been forced upon him is without comfort. Well, and Tim says, no, all right, wait is with comfort that there is a, is that right, Tim? That there is a sense of, a of comfort, like of solid. Comfort. In, okay. Prospect of comfort. David. Cause I, th- cause I think that, that Sarah experienced comfort eventually. And I think that we're seeing like, that's the path that Bendrix is on. David. I still don't understand how you answered the question, Heidi. <laughs> I feel like you didn't answer it just as much as I did. <laughs> Now we're playing chicken on who's going to not answer the question. Um, <laughs> I, I think I that there it. absolutely is a, well, see, comfort is, comfort is the word I'm stumbling over because I'm not mm-hmm. convinced that Sarah yet experiences comfort in the story. Mm-hmm. Other ah. than the potential for beyond the grave with her miracles and, and, and her kind of drawing of those that she loved to the kingdom. But I don't think before she died, she had any comfort. So, but mm-hmm. here's what I do believe is that comfort is not necessary for salvation. Yeah. And it is for people who walk, wisdom leads to comfort and nobody in this book is wise. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I think that she is saved. And I think that Bendrix is on the same path. I completely agree with everything that you said, Tim, about the clues within the novel that tell us that he is on the path of, of salvation the same way that Sarah is. And that it's just a matter of time. Um, that I completely agree with. Comfort is the word I'm stumbling over a bit. But I mean, that's helpful because I, I think that there's more, I, I think that Sarah, there's like glimmers of peace before mm-hmm. her death in the book. Um, and that's part of the reason why I hold out the same hope for Bendrix. But mm-hmm. that, my, I might be wrong about that. I've, I've just kind of, I'll say it, it is definitely, if the prospect of peace for Sarah is in the book, it's not spoken with a megaphone. I think it's, okay. it's relatively muted. It's painted in watercolor. Um, if you ask me for a passage, I'd have to spend time finding it. You know, I think there's like some, you know, bolded paragraph that shows that. But I'm, I've kind of either found that in the text or read that into the text and subsequently applied it to Bendrix. And if there's a weakness in my argument, that's probably what it is. Like maybe I presume too much peace for Sarah before her death. It's interesting, the equating of the terms comfort and peace. That has sort of that was emerged. Yeah. yeah. But you did distinguish earlier in your comment that there's a difference between those two. And I think you're mm-hmm. right. Um, so anyway, now I really want to hear David's answer to the question. David? <laughs> um, I don't think that necessarily he um, finds comfort. I, and I think... There's another line in the uh, review that I wanted to ask you about because I think it has a lot to do with this idea, and that is, um, it's the the Alex the writer I closed out of that Alex whatever I said his name was. <laughs> uh, he said that um, Bendrix sort of caves under the weight of the evidence, and 
this is a book that's huh. very um, evidence is a big concept throughout the whole thing. Of course, um, Smythe and Sarah are talking about it constantly. Smythe's talking about it with Bendrix. You've got the idea of a, of a private eye who's going around trying to gather evidence. They're all trying to prove various things and <clears throat> and hide various things. And so, if you think about it that way, if you think about it, the idea that his faith is sort of thrust upon him, but you know, either because all the evidence begins to suggest to him that God exists, then his faith is not one of that would naturally be one of comfort because his entire inclination, his sort of whole positioning um, is so aggressively against God and against what Sarah came to believe in. You know, he has positioned himself emotionally um, and and spiritually so aggressively against it that to eventually succumb to it would be the ultimate discomfort, right? Like, you know, and and I and I you mentioned the idea of circularity. I think you both have said it. I think that the the suggestion of Bendrix's future is in the the theme of circularity within the book. I think that's why the book begins with this sort of suggestion that, you know, the suggestion of media race, right? In media race, there's, you know, where you begin is kind of arbitrary. Um, I don't, I think that what's happening is that there's the, as there's this circular thing going on and he has, he's at that point in his life in the circularity. And so what she eventually began to feel, I think is, is, is meant to suggest how his, heart and soul begin to evolve too. Um, so that's my answer to the, to the question. What do you guys think about the evidence thing? So can you read the line from the reviewer about evidence? Yeah, just a second. Okay. Um, no, I don't want to register for free today. <laughs> wow, they're bombarding you. Yeah, they are. Yeah, the Guardian will get you on stuff. Um, well, this is the independent, one of those classic, uh, English names. Of course, the the name of the newspaper is just the independent. That's it. Okay. He says, I'm going to read the whole paragraph. The novel inserted fissures of doubt in my adolescent atheism. This is the writer speaking. I remember going to the, the American church on finishing the book and sitting at the end of the back of the room, waiting for some sort of epiphany. The end of the affair provides a blueprint for finding a way into belief. Bendrick's sardonic, burly resistance to Sarah's God finally breaks when the weight of evidence becomes too much. But this is not a happy conversion. And then the line that I mentioned, he, you know, there is no comfort in this newfound relationship with God. So Bendrick's sardonic, burly resistance to Sarah's God finally breaks when the weight of evidence becomes too much. Do you think that's what's, ha- do you, is that how you read this, this book? No, not even a tiny little bit, 0% how I read that. Before but, you explain, Tim, what about yeah. you? Are you muted again? I'm so sorry, you guys. Like right when you were getting bombarded by the independent, I started getting bombarded by a lawnmower outside that door. I jump up, slam the door, but I muted it so you wouldn't hear the door slam. Now I'm back. You have so <laughs> many do domestic adventures when we're recording. Like there's like people yeah, coming I, in maybe, your backyard and there's fires and there's basement. Oh, it's, that's true. It's like a video game over there. Yeah. This one's kind of pedestrian. It's just a guy mowing his lawn, but he just sounds like he's right outside my door. I, I, I think that evidence, I think that Bendrix is swayed in part by evidence, but I think it's key. It's absolutely crucial that the evidence is not the sort that would be supplied by Smythe um, because what Smythe is providing is a very sort of this worldly apologetics sort of um, defense for his atheism. And I think if Smythe was playing the other side, he's, he's arguing in kind of a rationalistic manner for, you know, the early dating of the gospels, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that, I don't think that Morris would be converted by that, 
But I do think that there are other evidences, these glimmers of miracles that seemed to be cropping up in this story. I think those count to him as evidence. I think he like is having a hard time looking away from those. I think I changed my answer. Disregarding those. I think you changed my mind with what you just said. Yes, that. So, okay, then how are you? It's not like the evidence like smide, right, Heidi? Like apologetics. He looks with disdain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He looks like with disdain. The book seems to look with disdain on that form of argumentation. Okay, so Heidi, you you were... Sorry, David. No, 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 no. You were very... uh, definitively against the concept and now your mind has changed, but it, how, how were you reading it? And thus, and then my question for that is if not evidence, then what was mm-hmm. he? Yeah. Always be careful and don't just like start saying things on, on the air. Just start talking. <laughs> yeah. You might get called <laughs> out on it. Yeah. Through things. <laughs> no. um, yeah. I, this is, a, this is a good lesson for me. Um, no, no, no. Keep doing that. It's a podcast. We need people yes. to talk. Thankfully, nothing much is at stake here because you just changed my mind and now it changed my mind. Um, so I, I think uh, the idea of a pile of evidence, uh, a blueprint, a weight of evidence, those are the, the words that the reviewer used, um, t- sounded to me a little bit clinical and intellectualized as though he like looked at one, you know, the pros side and the con side and decided to believe. And that's absolutely not what happened to either him or to Sarah. And so in that sense, um, I offhandedly rejected the entire meaning of the word evidence. Um, And I no longer stand by that because exactly what you said, Tim, there it was in part by evidence uh, and in part by experience. He had a very existential kind of, I don't know what you'd call this, like a pre-conversion, like the pre-game. You may um, call it a crisis. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Um, and it was very existential and rooted in emotion and relationship. Um, but also there are these miracles and he can't get away from that. And they are facts in his mind um, that might have a different interpretation Right, but they pile up to become evidence. I'm, I still, the word blueprint in that um, review, the idea of like if you sit in the back of a church and look at a crucifix, that that's some kind of blueprint. I don't see that in the novel at all. Um, I think the novel is, um, is examining exactly what you just said, David, which is crisis. Those, those moments in our lives, and we all have them when something happens that shakes us and you have to pick a lane and, and there's, you, you can't not pick a lane somehow in your inner world, in your inner life. And, and that, the, the lane you pick sometimes has something to do with evidence, but not, it is a very existential experience. And I see that in the novel. Absolutely. I think, you know, I think it's interesting because I think that the, the, it's interesting the, the way he phrases it, because to me, uh, he says the weight of evidence becomes too much. And it's, um, it, it's, not, a, um, it's not the evidence itself. Right. It's, it's, it's the weight. It's the word weight that is mm-hmm. the transformative, transformative concept there. Because for Bendrix, it's like a sort of gravity, right? Like it, it, it continues, it pulls and pulls and pulls and pulls and pulls and he's resisting and he's resisting and he's resisting and rather than resisting in you know in a way that gives him more strength you know like you know you know in a way that kind of like working out where you're building up muscles he's resisting he's he's resisting and resisting to the until he breaks down um until the weight is is too much the weight is not giving making him stronger the weight is revealing his own weaknesses and so so i think that where the evidence comes in is you know, it, he does not, he is not prepared to change his mind and his heart certainly is not changed. Uh, I mean, I think there's some semantic business in what I just said there that could be unraveled, but is not changed until he begins to put two and two together, if you will. I don't want to be too clinical because um, I know that simple arithmetic is uh, very clinical. Um, I don't want to, you know, it, once he begins to put two and two together as far as the, um, the miracles, that's when he begins to 
put his own guards, his own guard down. And, 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 you know, he begins to stop fighting. And I think that is really a crucial part of the book. Um, and I, th- I think it's fair and to call that evidence fighting. because, yeah, I think that is fair to call it evidence because I think that yeah. what's happening is he is, what he's seeing is the work of God at the, the, the proof of God being at work in the world. Um, in a way he's seeing a sort of incarnational faith mm-hmm. at work. Yes. And I think that that's what, that's what the, that's what the evidence is. He's, he's seeing evidence, not of like, um, syllogisms, but he's seeing evidence of the incar- of an incarnate of God's incarnation in the world. Um, you know, in, in a sense, um, I, I don't mean to say like, you know, we're not talking like Parker's back where this, you know, literally some kind of incarnation of Christ himself, but there is a sort of, uh, incarnation of God's work in the world. Sorry, Slack is talking to me. Um, so, um, and Slack just distracted me. So anyway, I'll, I'll end my thought right there. Someone else talk now. I, I think that word evidence is like the word proof. It's become so loaded with meanings <laughs> that we've kind of derived from the scientific method. And we forgot, we don't, we don't, we often, unless you're kind of like in the classical world and you think about rhetorical proofs as just like strong arguments with like a, a clear conclusion. You know, that's what I think of now when I think of proof. But I used to, kind of like I had like a much more um, mechanical view of what a proof was. A proof was something that when you got to it, you it could not be disputed and still consider yourself a rational agent. You know, you couldn't be a logical person and deny a proof. But I think, so same thing with evidence. Evidence is we typically, or at least I should just speak for myself, typically think of evidence as sort of um, what uh, a forensic scientist does in a lab. You get to the conclusion of you know am- amassing facts and data and materials, and that's your evidence. You've you've arrived at these evidences that you can almost reach out and touch or look at with a microscope. But the sorts of evidences, I think that. Bendrix is compelled by, and even Sarah is compelled by, are they're supernatural things that cannot be explained. They can't be explained. You can't reach out and touch them, and they seem to just exist. Like she prays that Bendrix not die, and maybe he was dead or maybe he was not dead, but he rises, and she can't explain that. And she takes it as something supernatural as and it's an evidence of something supernatural and i think that he sees these miracles laid in the book the same way well i i think evidences of something that can't be explained that are supernatural sorry david no no no. i i thought you were done sorry i think that the book absolutely creates these almost these if-then scenarios all throughout and the, the characters themselves at least are are you know thinking in that in that fashion you just mentioned the moment when she sees she sees him lying there under the door after the, the mm-hmm. bombing and she prays and, you know, she says, she basically essentially says, if you let him live, then I will, you know, leave him, you know, or whatever. And then that kind of, that kind of way of thinking motivates so much action in this book and, and so much, so much movement towards faith towards the very end of the book. One of the last few pages Bendrix has this bit here and it sounds to me, I'd love to hear what you guys think of this. It sounds to me almost clinical, like almost like a logic professor or something very philosophical, at least. Um, he says, um, I have no peace and I have no love except for you. You, I said to her, I'm a man of hate, but I didn't feel much hatred. I had called other people hysterical, but my own words were overcharged. I could detect their insincerity. What I chiefly felt was less hate than fear. And then this bit here. For if this God exists, I thought, and if even you, with your lusts and your adulteries and the timid lies you used to tell, can change like this, we could all be saints by leaping as you leapt, by shutting the eyes and leaping once and for all. If you are a saint, it's not so difficult to be a saint. It's something he can demand of any of us. Leap. 
but I won't leap. I sat on my bed and said to God, you've taken her, but you haven't got me yet. I know you're cunning. It's you who take us up to a high place and offer us the whole universe. Um, he goes on there. We can talk about that passage if you want, but this whole, you know, he, he's even talking here in sort of if then scenarios or if this happens and that happens. And it's like all these characters are sort of making deals with God and, and they're, you know, their their pathway to faith, but more important, well, not more importantly, but, but their pathway on the way to faith of being broken down is, is definitely related to, um, the evidences of God's work, you know, in, in the world. And I, and like the way he talks about it sounds like, you know, my college log, logic professor sounds like something you'd get out of a, you know, a book on syllogisms or something. Maybe yeah. Not syllogisms. But, yeah. Um, like there's a logical equation here and that's what he's working through. Um, you know, if it's possible for you to be a saint, then, then it happened. This has to be real, <laughs> you know? And so for him, it's yeah, all about, right. you know, if this is true, then, okay, this is true. Um, and the big yeah. difference there to me, th- this is a big change for him. This is one of the things that I think is really interesting about the end of the book. That's not, necessarily how he had been thinking he had been ruled by his passions not his logic and so in the oh, end of the book, yeah he yeah. almost is ruled by the if we're taking the duty and passions concept that heidi has talked about so eloquently then what we have here is him basically saying if this is true then this is true and because this is true my duty is to do this so he has been ruled by mm-hmm. his passions throughout, but now we're getting a merging of the passions and, the, and duty together because he recognizes that there is a reality in the universe that he hadn't recognized before and thus was a permitted to rule, let his passions rule him. Right. I completely agree. I think I, I was taking notes on this exact thing and you used the word crisis earlier, David, and I was thinking the only way for... The only way for the love of God to break through to his heart is by, is through a crisis of desire. And so he took away the object of his desire and now Morris has to live without that. And he even says that at the end of that paragraph that mm-hmm. you read, mm-hmm. yep. um, that you're a devil want, God yep. tempting us to leap, but I don't want your peace and I don't want your love. I wanted something very simple and very easy. I wanted Sarah for a lifetime and you took her away. Um, I hate you, God, I hate you as though you existed. And I think that crisis of desire is the only chance that somebody this lost has to find the path of salvation or be found by God and, uh, and shown the path of salvation. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think for Sarah, who as I've been wondering throughout this book, I wonder if she's more, you know, a desire driven or a duty driven. I think she is more of a duty driven person because it's her crisis of duty that um, like her path of salvation has to go back to the sacrament of marriage. That's very clear. Uh, the trajectory of her salvation has to go through Henry. Um, and then poor Henry at the end, what do you, what do you, I'll make of him. Where's he at at the end of this novel? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the duty thing because in a sense, what he, you know, when it comes to the sacrament of, you know, um, well, you mentioned the sacrament of marriage, but like when you, when it comes to like, um, when, how they're going to bury her mm-hmm. or cremate yeah. her and all that. And they, you're talking all these different things. Henry's, I mean, <laughs> not Henry. Bendrix is, uh, he's being driven by his passions, right? He's yes. being driven by his, by his own resistance. Um, and Henry is like, but what, what's the right thing to do? And he, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I think suggests there might be hope for him is that he mm. is, he is not completely bought into one of the other sides there. He is still, he's trying to, to do the, he's trying to figure out what the right thing is to do by her, if you will. Um, and his he is he's in the 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 point in the in the in the process where he's full of confusion and fear and um, but he doesn't have the wellspring of hatred that that Bendrix has and so in some ways it suggests that right. perhaps he might also be on his way but his his desire to do the right thing and his wrestling with that even in the face of Bendrix's persuasion I think is is compelling and hopeful Tim what do you think. 
I, I thought his conclusion was very hopeful, but that's another one for me. It'd be hard for me to, it, it was more of a, an intuition. It'd be hard for me to really find a, like a strong proof text for that. Yeah, I agree. And <laughs> Morris is continually the one who's blocking Henry, right? He is, every time Henry's like, but what if, what if we should give her a mm. Catholic burial? What if, yeah. you know, he's trying to be, you know, the dinner with the priest is such a, um, example of that. Henry's trying to mm -hmm. engage the priest in conversation. Morris shuts him down. So perhaps yeah. with Morris on a pathway, you know, at, at the end of the novel, he believes he doesn't yet love, but he believes, um, yeah. and, you know, the implication, especially to us Christians is, well, that's enough. Like that's, that's the grace for the step you're on and they will continue to walk deeper into grace. Yeah. I, I think it's so interesting also that Bendrix recognizes that Smythe doth protest too loud. Mm. Like his argument early in the book um, is so full of venom that even Bendrix is can kind of recognize, oh gosh, he's, or maybe it's Sarah, he's afraid and he's arguing, he's afraid that God might exist. It may really be possible. And that's part of the reason that his arguments have such venom and heat behind them because, you know, he's terrified. God might actually be out there. And I find the conclusion of Bendrix's story, especially at the dinner with the priest, to be the same thing. He's arguing with such heat. He can just can't stand the sight of the priest. And to me, I, that's when I started thinking, oh, gosh, maybe Bendrix is on the path. He's doing the same thing that Smythe is doing. Mm -hmm. Okay, Heidi, I have a question. It, I seem to recall David early in this series of podcasts saying, or maybe you said it, that you did not like the ending of the book. Is that, is that true? I was literally just going to ask that? this. Oh. Um, I think the ending is great. I just, I, I keep saying this it's, and people keep explaining it to me and I keep like being like, yeah, I agree with you. But I, I just don't buy them being best friends at the end of the novel. I just think it's, uh, I just think it doesn't work. Yeah. I think it doesn't work. See that, but, but is that how you read it? Yes. I, I can't do without you. Our evening walks are the best thing. Come and live it. That's not, uh, Henry. Ooh, that's not how I read that at all. Actively like, it's like, come live in my house. I don't know. I just... That whole, that is the only part of the novel that feels like a neat little bow tied onto there. Yeah. Look, I can even yeah. make my husband and my lover be BFFs forever. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. That's, that's, yeah. I'm a David, saint. You don't read it that Yeah, way. but that's what she would do. Yes, I know. That's why. So that's what she I, would do if she people, had have the choice because they need, <laughs> they, they don't just want them to be lonely. But also I think, well, Tim, go re respond to this. I read their relationship as, um, you know, the odd couple. Remember that old 60s or 70s show, The Odd Couple? Mm -hmm. You know, they just can't, they don't like each other, but they end up being roommates and they kind of are forced to kind of get along. I what you're saying is this isn't Butch way. Cassidy like, and the these, Sundance Kid. <laughs> yeah, these are not like ride or die bros. I think they're two guys that don't have, they don't have anything left. What do these guys have left? Yep. I think Bendrick there's two is so miserable. He is the saddest person mm -hmm. in London. He is so sad. I'm like, if he developed a drug habit, he would be happier. He's so miserable. Yeah. I mean, I, think I don't know that. Say to say, well, I was just gonna say I don't. I think that him him standing by Henry is just further evidence of the duty. I, I, to me, them them 
being there for each other, so to speak, to put it simplistically, is evidence of two things, despair and character evolution. If it had been that in like, it's evidence mm. of the fact that they have changed as people that, that they're, that what they've been through has, has altered them. Um, you know, and, and it's Bendrick saying this, this guy needs me. And it's, and in a way I think it's Henry recognizing Bendrick's loneliness as well. And that's why I think, yeah, I think that's why, um, I think Bendrick's realizes he had no real reason to hate Henry. And I think that Henry re- realizes that he needs to forgive Bendrix. And I think that's sort of what's happened. Mm. Um, mm. and, and I don't think they're, they're not, I don't think they're partners. I don't think, you know, I don't think they're like pals. I don't, I mean, I think that what they are is they're two very lonely people bordering on despair who are having existential crises and are very, and they're very sad. And they are both in a way doing the duty that they believe Sarah would want, Sarah would want them to do because she loved them each in, in their own, in her own, you know, each of them in, in a different flawed way. Um, yeah. So I don't read them as like best friends. Like, you know, if they're, if they're staying up watching the Simpsons at midnight, it's more cause they're like, what else are we going to do? <laughs> what else am I going to do? <laughs> and he needs me to be here. Hey, I, maybe it evolves. I mean, maybe, maybe they grow into, you know, maybe, maybe they're uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance kid sitting on the, you know, what's the British version of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. Um, maybe it evolves into that, but go ahead, Tim. I wanted to ask Heidi about this. I'm going to preface it with a slightly obscure literary reference. Have you guys seen the movie or the, read the play? Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yes. Do you know that play? Mm-hmm. Okay. So just to recap it for people that haven't seen it, um, a husband and a wife invite this young couple over and the husband and wife are just on the last legs of their marriage and a variety of different events happen during the evening and they are at each other's throats. They're probably in their fifties at each other's throats. It's such a difficult play the whole night. They just keep like the, the stakes keep getting higher and higher and higher until finally the marriage just snaps. It's, it's ostensibly over. Then the sunlight comes up and this couple, like they've just done, they've just kind of clawed each other down to the bone. And now the other couple is gone and they're in their house and there's kind of nothing left to do, but be there with each other. And there's this kind of hopeful moment at the end of the play, that like, okay, we got down to bone and now we can actually build something together. My friend, Dan, loves the ending of this play. He's like, right. That's how, like, sometimes it has to get to that. And I just think if you do that much damage to somebody else, I just don't see how you're going to build it back. I mean, it's possible. Of course it's possible, but it just seems like the destructiveness, the hurt that they've done to each other makes any sort of future for me. it's not really terribly plausible to me. And I wonder, Heidi, if that's how you view Bendrix and uh, Bendrix and um, sorry, Sarah's husband. What's wrong with me? Henry. Henry. Yeah. Do, do you, if they've done so much. It's a British novel. The other, husband is probably named Henry. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or Edward. Yeah. Right. Osvar. <laughs> that they can't like they could, they couldn't be best friends. Yeah, I just don't think, yeah, I think that, I I think that what you're getting at is important, that there is a, there, there is not, there are, I don't even know, five billion people in the world at the time that this novel was written. Like, I can see structurally in the novel why it's important that they maintain a relationship because it's a novel and the novel has its own world and its own rules. And within the world of the novel, for what each of them represents, they need to have some kind of connected relationship at the end for there to be resolution, right? I, I don't yeah. know that like sustained living together conditions between a cuckolded husband and the man that she was sleeping with and in love with has to be there. Like, I think you can achieve that by them, like seeing each other at a bar and nodding to each other from down the bar. 
Like that, the level of relationship at the end seems psychologically unrealistic to me, even Boy, for a passive I, I, I man. I think you're right. Even for a passive man like Henry is, because he's not passive. Morris doesn't show up. Henry pursues him. Come live in my house. He uh-huh. like changes his study so that he has a place to live. Like he makes him a flat in the house. He wants to have a relationship with Morris. So I, I find it psychologically inconsistent. That doesn't mean I don't love the novel as a novel. It just means I get to the end and I'm like, really? Like if I was sleeping yeah. with somebody, <laughs> Scott would not want to like hang out with that guy. Even if I died and, and performed miracles to save him. So, <laughs> <laughs> so good. Man, I, Heidi, I That's such a right. hypothetical situation. Dude, I, I don't know that I would. <laughs> <laughs> I actually asked Scott about that. I'm like, would you hang out with the guy that I was sleeping with for years? Like, and he's like, are you kidding? Okay, did you, did you then feel like salt and pepper it by saying, okay, but what if I had performed some miracles? Yeah, I mean, I did. I told I him this story. Like, and <laughs> so granted, Scott's not a passive person, but even, I don't know if that completely covers the psychological inconsistencies here. So I, that being said, I love this novel. I love this novel. I just, I, I, as I get to the end of it, I have to suspend some disbelief in that relationship. And I think it's so primary to the novel that that's a flaw. Mm-hmm. Heidi, I think that's a totally legit criticism. I think that's, that's a good criticism. Because I, when Bendix moves in, I was like, wait, seriously? Wait, you're moving in to like save some money? Yeah, but so and- was Bendrix. <laughs> so, David, Wait, so you look Bendrick's so what? like so contemplative. Like you're 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 thinking hard about this. So prove me wrong. Convince me. I just think you, I I I think that's the point. Like okay. I think that's the point that it's psychologically inconsistent, um, and that's like I, that's why I think that it's got to do with change. I mean, Bendrix himself is like surprised that henry would respond the way oh like you're saying maybe it's part of henry's like journey to salvation like one of those miraculous yeah. occurrences that we're supposed to be like whoa yeah and henry could also only be supernatural right and henry also recognizes his own like you know it's not like he was doing everything he could for sarah and then she was unfaithful to him. he feels he feels deep guilt about it and he knows that Bendrix, in a sense, brought her some happiness, and so he's he is uh, he's trying to do what he thinks she would want. She, he knows that she loved Bendrix and cared about him in a way that he she did not care for him because he was not able to be there. That he chose not to be there for her, and so he is trying to do his duty based on what she would want. Um, I think that actually is psychologically consistent with him, but I. Th- with who he was from the whole throughout the whole book. But I also think that his ability to move on from his own, you know, um, hatred and his, the, the degree to which he, you know, responds to Bendrix is driven by his own guilt and his own, you know, his own, uh, um, um, his own, yeah, his own path of salvation, I think. And, you know, if, if it was like, if the book wasn't surprised by it too, I would agree. But the book itself thinks that Henry's a weirdo. Okay, so I don't know if I'm completely convinced, but that is the best argument I've ever heard. <laughs> that the book thinks that Henry's a weirdo? Yes, People have argued with that, you about this, Heidi. Yes, I just, I can't get over, never been able to get over it. And and the the reason it bothers me is because I love this novel so much. I love this novel. And so the fact that I kind of find that to be lame is and unbelievable bothers me. I want to reconcile that. So I think that what David said is the best no, argument I, I've ever heard. Way more, way, yeah. That's argument that's about anything? Argument about well, anything? I mean, no, heard? not about anything. Just oh, about on. that issue. It's a narrow focus. <laughs> Well, that's not really—it's not really much of a compliment, then. You made a totalizing, 
Is that a totalizing claim? I mean, I have other problems in life that I'm happy for you to convince me and make a good argument. (laughs) And then maybe I'll say a collection of arguments is the best. But yeah, well, yeah. (sighs) Is there any any way that, that, that Henry could be on the path to salvation, recognize his own culpability in Sarah's affair, recognize that, you know, his, his life has become prosaic and so duty bound that there's kind of nothing else to it. Can he both be that guy who is on the path of salvation, recognizing what needs to happen and also think, man, I still want to cut that guy. Yes. Well, I kind of think so too. I kind of think so too. Some of the saddest moments of the book are, are moments when, you know, Henry is expressing his sense of loss. You know, he has that line, um, something like the next best thing to talking to her is talking about her. And he recognizes that, you know, there is Mm. such a deep loneliness and sadness in that, that, that is driving, I think some of his actions too. And, and I think that Bendrix recognizes that and, and there's some kinship in that loneliness. Um, and I think that's a sort of kinship that goes beyond the, you know, that, that draws out a sort of, psychological um it draws us beyond the scope of psychological normalcy Hmm. like a a loneliness that profound that deep um and a sadness that profound and that deep causes us to act in ways that you know are not so by the book uh and i think that that is yeah i think that that's what i'm saying is when the when i said the book recognizes that he's weird and like i think if any of us were reading it and we're like yep that's normal then that would say that more that we are, I mean, I don't want to accuse anyone who thought that that was weird of being like sad, but I think that that's sort of what the would probably be the most likely conclusion. Like, I think the, the book itself thinks these are two broken, profoundly broken people. And, you know, the Mm. fact that in the end they might be able to be on the path towards self to their own individual paths of salvation uh, together I think is where is one of the things that makes the book hopeful in the end. And I think that that's, I think the book implies that that's that, although Sarah, I don't think that the book suggests that Sarah was acting in that way. I think it implies that she would, that she wants them, you know, she, she has this, um, uh, sort of prayerful attitude for both of them. I think that's why she goes back. She promises that Henry shall stay with them. Hmm. I really like that. But we're running out of time. Mainly, I'm running out of time. Do we want to? Um, what else do we need to talk about? We've got the Q and A next week. Uh, anything else? Do you feel like we need to address on this particular episode? I want to say just one thing. There's this pattern among some of these great Catholic 20th century novelists. I include Graham Greene. I include. Flannery O'Connor, I include Walker Percy, who we're going to read this year. Um, so many of them write stories that have this, that end not with an uplift, not with like a moment of salvation and clarity and freedom, but they end at a kind of muted moment of decision. So I think about something right, like, um, there's probably a better example from Flannery O'Connor, but maybe Revelation we get to the end of that book and there's not a conversion, but there's this sort of like vision of the alternative sort of life that one could lead. Now is our character going to choose it? And almost all of Walker Percy's books, almost every novel ends with a decision moment where the main character is facing two antithetical choices, one toward God and one toward sort of like, and kind of an earthly hedonism. And we don't see a choice. We just know what the, what the avenues are after the choice. Mm. And I just think that this, I find the conclusion of this book to be so similar that we have this repeating cycle and Morris is either going to choose to kind of follow in the path of Sarah or he's going to keep repeating the same pattern that he, that we've been seeing over and over since the beginning of the book. 
I also, I think actually that more likely it's both because I think that the, even Sarah, Sarah's own story is this repeating cycle of doubt and faith going back and forth and, and, you know, through, through the whole of the novel, you know, after, from the time that she says the prayer to the time that she dies, she's weaving in and out of that. We see it in her letters. And so I, th- I think that that's one of the reasons why he does that because I think that it's about making the decision over and over again. You know, it's about mm-hmm. touching Henry's arm over and over again. I think that's, it's not just about the one moment that's going to lead you forward. It's about the fact that, you know, the path of salvation is, uh, in this scheme, if you will, is twisting. Um, and sometimes you double back, not, you know, and, and then God draws you back to him. Um, and I think that that's, that's why I think the, the notion of cyclical, the cyclical nature of things is, uh, is, is crucial in this. We can talk about the, the beginning of the book next week on the Q and a. So someone asked a question about that. Did you want to say something about this? Heidi? Okay. Yeah. No, I just really love that. And I think that that's, the the great Catholic novel of the 20th century is, in my opinion, this is just an opinion, but I state it strongly because I believe it strongly. It is the redemption of the modern novel because the modern novel uh, is, and I'm using modern in a very specific sense, like in, in, in a literary sense, is a novel of uh, that explores hopelessness and despair and the loss of belief and the loss of hope and and you can't just come charging in with a neat little bow at the end of your novels uh anymore like that ship sailed in mm-hmm. the 20th century mm-hmm. and and, it, and then mm-hmm. the catholic novelists came along and the, i think they redeemed it i love their novels because they did that they said a life of faith is just as complex just as much wrestling in right. the deep places of the soul it isn't a neat little ball. Nobody is saying that. We know that. And 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 here's the story of a complex, nuanced life that does fall under submission to faith, but it's hard fought. It's reluctant. And that is in many ways the 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 modern man. And and I'd say probably the three of us know that, right? Like our life, our faith is not a neat little bow. And and neither is our listeners. And so those mm, Catholic novelists got that. Maybe yours is. Um, <laughs> mine is not. So, um, I know it's not. But that, yeah, I shouldn't have said that out loud. I, I know. I love that about the Catholic novelists. I think they did something great, not just for literary history, but for salvation's history. Like, I think that what they did was profoundly important spiritually as well as literarily. Everyone should check out, uh, uh, I believe you say his name, uh, Repatrizone, Nick, Nick Repatrizone's new book, mm-hmm. Longing for an Absent God, which is um, so about good. the Catholic novels. Um, you know, it, it's, it strikes me that books like this, in many ways, Tim, you mentioned Flannery O'Connor, and she had the famous, the famous notion or, or phrasing or whatever that you have to shout um, for those that are yeah. hard of hearing. And in many ways, it feels like these Catholic novels often are about people who are either um, willfully or for other reasons, hard of hearing. Maybe the malaise has set in or maybe they've made choices. Um, and so, you know, their, their ears have been covered or, you know, they're like earwax or something, you know, so to speak, just go with me. But that the books <laughs> in, in the books themselves, a shouting has to happen. And, it, you know, when you read a book like this, although it doesn't seem like shouting as it's happening per se, there are these moments where it seems like, you know, um, a shouting is, is happening. You know, it's Sarah's being shouted at when maybe when, when uh, Bendrix is lying under the door and then ultimately Sarah dies and there's a sort of shouting in that and there's all these miracles and it's like, it's like God is sort of, you know, it's, it's the done thing, right? This is a book so much about pursuit and that's why there's so much like, you know, almost erotic language in it because the, the fundamental to it is the pursuit of God. It's that, it's the, it's like what Dunn is doing in his work. We talked about this earlier and it's a sort of shouting, you know, it's a sort of shouting where God is saying, I want you. And he, they're not listening. They're not hearing the idea that they are desirable. And so the book, you know, constantly throughout these books, it's people like, you know, Bendrix in this book or, um, you know, uh, O'Connor Charles characters Ryder. or Charles Ryder or, you know, in the movie goer, um, uh, um, it sounds like Bendrix. What's his name in that one? I um, never read that. Well, 
I forget what his name is. Um, but you know, they're being pursued by God and they're, they're being shouted at. And that's what, you know, it's that pursuit is, is salvific, I guess. Um, but okay. Well, I need to, I need to wrap this up. Um, thanks so much guys. Do you have any final thoughts? No, no, I'm good. All right. Well, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Mm -hmm.